Today on Ag News Daily. Definitely residue management is, is a piece of that, but you, you won't eliminate it with, with, with that, but it does help. Your two biggest management practices that you got to think about are genetic selection against it, so meaning <clears throat> hybrid selection. Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen, and happy Wednesday here on the Ag News Daily Podcast. Selene Hall, I'm joined today by Ashton Carr. Ashton, I woke up this morning and it was dreary and rainy here in central Iowa, and that definitely has pushed some folks out of the fields this week. Well, that is unfortunate for your part of the world, Delaney, but in my part, it is sunny and I think like 72 probably, and there's not a cloud in the sky. That is good. Lucky for you. Not so lucky for us as we are trying to get planting through and pushed quite a, right along here. Of course, we saw yesterday the harvest progress for the year is just at that halfway point. But a lot of the wet weather we've seen this week is definitely going to push folks out of the field for some time. And we're going to chat weather later this week with Eric Snodgrass. So folks, stay tuned for that conversation. Absolutely, Delaney. And I'm excited to talk to him just because we're anticipating another harsh winter. I say harsh. Of course, it was really harsh last year just for us down here in Texas. And with the weather patterns that we're seeing, we could potentially face a, another polar vortex. So I definitely have a few questions to ask him myself. But before we get into that, we've got to share some news for today. And I have one that concerns some of our our ports. And we actually talked about the port congestion in my ag law class today. So got to have a couple of different discussions there. And this is a pretty timely announcement here because we've been having so many bottleneck issues when it comes to our ports here in the U.S. And in response to that, President Biden is launching a plan to ease shipping delays at West Coast ports that involves expanding hours 24-7. And I believe that there have already been a couple ports in LA and Long Beach specifically that have already expanded their hours to 24-7. And we're seeing, you know, some bottlenecks, of course, in the West Coast, but we're also seeing some of those shipping containers moving over to the East Coast. And hopefully we can get to the bottom of that here soon. We're trying to get an interview lined up there. But back over here to this plan, major shippers and major realtors, including Walmart, say that they will expand their nighttime hours to meet the need. The International Longshore and Warehouse Union says that its members are willing to work extra hours at its ports. The ports of Long Beach and LA make up about 40%, 40% of shipping containers that enter the U.S. Biden says that Transportation Secretary Buttigieg and our port envoy will continue to work with all stakeholders to help more businesses access expanded hours and move the rest of the supply chain towards 24-7 operation. Now, being open 24-7 doesn't seem... Like, I, I would not want to work 24-7, but, you know, at least we have workers that are willing to do that, willing to put in the work so we don't have any more of these bottleneck issues. Well, that's a question that I would pose, Ashton, is do they actually have workers? Because I think there's probably a little bit of disconnect there between the administration saying, let's go ahead and open them 24 hours. And the reality of the situation is 
everywhere is hiring right now and it's hard to get bodies in to fill some of these roles. So I, I mean, maybe you would question whether or not they have the ability to run 24 seven, whether they want to or able to or not. That That's correct. You raise a good point there, but at least the International Longshore and Warehouse Union says that its members are willing to work those extra shifts at the port. So and they're saying that maybe the members are thinking another thing or those workers are thinking another thing, but I'm not so sure that just opening up these hours to 24-7, if that's really going to make much of a difference. I mean, this is a pretty huge issue that we're seeing. I mean, if you've seen the photos, the satellite imagery, I guess, of the, the ships that are just surrounding the U.S., there's a ton and it's pretty shocking. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it certainly is. But Ashton, right along in lines with that there, when you're talking about shipping issues, obviously we've seen that across the board with many sectors of agriculture, including fertilizer, including grain, livestock products, manufactured products, etc. But another one here that we haven't really touched on a whole lot is glyphosate and the glyphosate shortage that's really been going on here since the spring of 2021, which is continuing to intensify due to shipping logistic issues. Back during the Hurricane Ida issue, we saw a lot of facilities not able to import and get glyphosate to the proper places that they've needed, so much so that a plant was idled after Hurricane Ida hit the Gulf Coast down there in that area. And just last week, Bayer told Farm Journal that the plant was still in the process of getting adequate and stable power and was still not up to full production. Bayer says that heading into the 2022 growing season, glyphosate, which is, of course, is the active ingredient in Roundup Ready, is going to potentially be in shortage and a hard chemical for producers to find come next year's growing season. So you're talking about that being a potentially raised input cost alongside of fertilizer. That's a little bit of a tough pill to swallow if you are a grain farmer. Absolutely, Delaney. This is a story that I think we're just going to have to continue to follow. It's one that I actually had geared up here to talk about today. So I'm glad that we're bringing these conversations here to the table because it's definitely things that our producers need to be aware of. And another thing that I think we should be aware of today is Hurricane Pamela. Hurricane Pamela made way into Mexico's Pacific coast as a category one hurricane before it lost some momentum and moving inland as a tropical storm. So definitely not on the same caliber as we saw Hurricane Ida, but I still think the storms and I mean, a hurricane is a hurricane, tropical storm is a tropical storm. So we're going to have intense rain, a whole lot of wind and the potential for flooding and of course, more damages there to Mexico. So I'm going to be keeping my eyes out on this. It was just a story that I had that I saw earlier today. So I am thinking that we'll learn a little bit more to see if any of our Mexican agriculture was damaged. So just another storm that I think we're going to have to be paying attention to. I say storm, just more storm damages that we're going to have to be paying attention to. Actually, this is a question we'll have to ask Eric on Friday because all of these hurricanes and storms have names of people. I'm always curious how they go about naming the storms. 
I always thought that too, as a kid, you know, my name is Ashton. It's not that unique or anything. Definitely a weird spelling. I say weird. It's just because I have a Y instead of an O. And I was always upset that nothing was ever named after me, but some of my friends have had hurricanes named after them. So I'm going to have to ask them about that and see if there's a way that we can get our names on a hurricane, Delaney. Yeah, that's a good question. Can I submit my name to be a hurricane? Because I would do that if I could. I don't know. That's a really good question. We're going to have to see if Eric has any connections that he can get yeah, in with. He might. He sure might. We'll have to ask him on Friday. But um, another piece of news here, Ashton, is we're talking about exports, shipments, and the overall ag economy. U.S. beef exports set another new value record in August, topping a billion dollars for the first time since the series has been recorded, according to information released by the USDA. The U.S. Meat Export Federation also notes that pork saw a very strong month in the month of August, saw a very strong export month in the month of August as well, remaining ahead of the record pace set last year. Comes as no surprise, but a lot of those shipments were headed to China and Japan, both on the pork and beef side of things. And so, so far for the months of January through August, beef exports have increased 18% from a year ago, which is a lot when you think about it, because we had to deal with COVID last year. A lot of countries were trying to snap up product already with that kind of issue in play. Pork exports uh, are up as well, but just 4% compared to a year ago. So definitely good news there for our beef producing and pork producing friends. Well, Delaney, one thing that isn't good news or really hasn't been good news over the past, I don't even know how many months now, is the drought that has been plaguing some of our states here. And some potential good news coming out of that is an online tool that is now available to help ranchers document and estimate payments to cover feed transportation costs that were caused by the drought, which are now covered by the Emergency Assistance for Livestock, Honeybees, and Farm-Raised Fish Program. The new ELAP feed transportation producer tool is a Microsoft Excel workbook that enables ranchers to input info specific to their operation to determine an estimated payment. And final payments may vary depending on eligibility. And this is coming from the USDA. So if there are any producers out there that would be eligible for this program, they can go and get that Excel workbook and see if they can't plug and play some numbers there. Absolutely. Great tool there. Might be a good one to have on Tech Tuesday sometime soon, Ashton. Absolutely, Delaney. But unfortunately, I'm all out of news today. What about you? I think I am as well, other than chatting markets for today. And of course, we had the WASDE report yesterday that pushed markets lower. It continued to trickle that news into today. And commodities continued to trade lower today in both corn, soybeans, and wheat gave up a lot of yesterday's gains. Kicking things off here in the December corn contract down 10 and a quarter cents to close at 512 and a quarter. The March down 10 cents to close at 522.
Soybeans today, not giving up as much as they gave up yesterday, but still trending lower here after yesterday's pretty bearish report. November down three cents today to close at 11.95 and a quarter. The January down four to close at 12.06 even. Chicago wheat trending lower today as the December contract shed 15 and a quarter cent to close at 7.18 and three quarters. The March down 15 and a half cents to end at 7.31 and three quarters. Hopping over into the livestock pits today, we saw some red across the screen as the December live cattle contract shed 25 cents to close at 129, the February down 70 to end the day out at 133.55. That weakness trickled down into the feeder cattle pits today as the November contract cutting 82.5 cents, ending the day at 160.97.5, the January down $1.32.5 to close at 161.45. And in lean hogs for today, we saw the December contract close two and a half cents lower to end at 78.15. The February down 40 cents to close at 80.85. And lastly, wrapping things up, of course, with the class three dairy milk futures. November down, excuse me, November up six cents today to close at 18.87. The December up four to close at 18.40. Ashton, without further ado, I know we're talking disease today with Golden Harvest. So let's turn it over to that interview. Well, today we are talking to Brad Koch, who is an agronomist for Western West Central Illinois, excuse me there, for Golden Harvest. Brad, thank you so much for coming on and chatting with us today. Good afternoon. So, Brad, before we get started talking here about some of the diseases that have really been hitting the fields this year, let's learn a little bit more about you and the position that you hold with Golden Harvest. Yeah, so um, I am fortunate to cover the great part of Illinois that I call West Central Illinois, which is basically our own from Quincy, Illinois, over to Decatur, up to the Galesburg, Peoria area, and everywhere in between. Um, and um, it is my home area. I grew up in Adams County, which is on the western side. So worked for the company for uh, 14 years and have traveled all over the tri-state in different roles, um, both in the field, research, and crop protection, uh, a little bit of technology, and so back here to my to my roots in agronomy, um, and I uh, love what I do, and uh, helping growers make decisions um, on the farm. So Brad, like I mentioned, we have seen a couple of different diseases kind of hitting the fields this year, and I want to start out here in corn, because there's two in particular that we've really had our eyes set out on. This year just just reminds me that no no two growing seasons are ever alike. Um, and so you kind of got to set up the weather scenario a little bit to talk about what all happened. And it was it was quite um, right. You got to have you got your hosts, which we're always going to have our crops. For the most part, we have the inoculum um, and then you got to have that weather part of the triangle to to get everything to work. And, and we certainly had that. Um, we we were actually quite dry as we went through the first part of June. Um, we were we were almost in a flash drought, uh, which is not typical in Central Illinois. Um, but but even in some of the best soils, um, there we we stress corn from a drought perspective. <clears throat> well, you fast forward that to the last week of June into July, I had areas and counties in my territory log up to twenty inches of rain. So 
well, that's good, right? So we replenish the soil profile for good corn growth. Um, but that that also leached out some nutrients, which we won't get into, but that also brought about quite the disease triangle, right? And so specifically, the two of those were southern rust and tar spot. Um, northern corn leaf blight was also that third, I call it kind of the trifecta of diseases that happened this year. And those were the three big ones that that took out um, the top end on this corn crop. And each one of those kind of has its own unique environment, but for the most part, you need moisture and humidity for, for that. Some of them thrive in cooler or hotter conditions. But so we cooled down in July, we got really wet. And so Northern corn leaf blight popped up and we also, this tar spot, um, came in earlier than we than we normally see. Also, southern rust spun up on some of the storm systems. So that's one disease that does not overwinter in Illinois. You don't know if you're going to have it or not. And we were logging it in spore sensors the first week of July. And I visually saw it the, um, around mid-July. Um, so if you have the eye for it, you can see it kind of coming on. So, um Northern corn leaf blight likes a little bit cooler conditions. So we had that through July. We heated up into August, which kind of tempered that one a little bit. Um, but then the southern rust just blew up. Um, it, as long as you've got humidity, um, it takes about 95 degrees to really shut that thing down. And we did have a couple days and weeks like that. But um, my point is, is we had conditions in July and August to propagate all three of those diseases um, to economic levels. If not at economic at one, certainly you mix the three and you were way past um, economic thresholds. So what are some ways that people can manage and respond to these diseases if they're seeing them in their fields? A lot of folks, of course, are good to harvest right now. So is there anything that we can do at the moment to kind of save some yield there? And what can we be able to do in the future to hopefully not have another year such as this one? Yeah, there there's several there's there's definitely different management practices <clears throat> practices that growers can can implement the thing about southern rust is the the good thing is that at least to date it hasn't it hasn't overwintered here um our winters kind of kill that spore off it's got to be blown up so that's not an always that's a good thing <clears throat> northern corn leaf blight and tar spot that inoculum's here so you i mean we know the inoculum's here. You're going to plant the host, right? And so it, you know, it just takes that weather event to make it happen. So that's the ones you really got to manage for. And so, you know, residue management is part of that. You know, even aggressive tillage is not going to get rid of all of the inoculum. Can, can it help? Absolutely. So that's that's part of it. If if you're thinking about corn on corn. Um, Definitely, residue management is is a piece of that, but you you want to eliminate it with with that. But it does help. Um, your two biggest management practices that you got to think about are genetic selection against it, so meaning <clears throat> hybrid selection and the tolerance against those different diseases. And for the most for, for the most part, if 
got a hybrid that's good on one. They're tip, it's typically pretty good on, on all of them. Um, that's not always the case, but um, generally, at least within the Golden Harvest lineup, um, that that is the case. So um, we've got we've got a four to five pack of hybrids that are just phenomenal against northern corn leaf blight and uh, tar spots. So um, really happy to have some of that genetic resistance within a lineup. Now, that said, <clears throat> is residue management and genetic resistance going to completely eliminate it? No, that's, that, that's part of a management practice. Um, the, 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 the last piece of that is, is going to be fungicide management. And that's going forward, I think genetic resistance is going to determine if a grower is going to have to spray one or two times for this, for this disease, whether it's southern rust or, or tar spot, um, especially if you get both of them together. They're, together, they, they, they take out leaf area like crazy um, during grain fills. So I think if, you, if growers pick a hybrid with good genetic resistance, to one or both of those diseases, they're probably going to get by with a well-timed fungicide. Um, and, and I say well-timed because what happened this year is the industry couldn't keep up with the amount of orders for fungicide um, from retail and, and the growers. And so a lot of guys in that, uh, put the management practice in place and called the retailer or, or aerial facility um, to get something on, they might have waited two weeks to, to actually get get it applied because there was a backlog. Um, there just wasn't the amount of, of, of machinery to, to get it all done. So that concerns me going forward. Can this industry keep up um, as growers just implement a one pass, right? So we're just trying to get guys to do a one pass. Um, if we have to go to a two-pass system to manage these diseases, I don't know that the industry can keep up um, at this point. So that's where I'm really coaching my clients, my dealers, and customers to pick a package, meaning a, a genetic package, a hybrid, um, you know, two or three pack that's really good against these. Nothing's perfect. Nothing's a one, but have some good resistance and then implement a, you know, a fungicide management program early, get it planned and, um, and, and, and you'll be successful. Um, but on, on hybrids that don't have a lot of tolerance to those two diseases, I really believe it's going to, it's going to be a two pass system, whether that's early on, like a V5, V6 application, and then a R, Tassel R1 application or a double in season pass, maybe at tassel and then, you know, mid grain fill. Um, even the best fungicides, um, you know, aren't going to last the whole season um, from that standpoint. But there are a couple very robust fungicides on the market for this, for those diseases. Um, the the overarching company that owns Golden Harvest, uh, Syngenta, has crop protection products uh, labeled Mervis Neo and Trivapro R2. They're highly efficacious on those diseases. 
um, that, that can really help growers manage these diseases. It's, but nothing, not one thing's a silver bullet. It is a management regime to control this. You make some great points there, Brad. I want to get your take here on sudden death syndrome and soybeans. That's also a thing that we've been paying attention to a little bit here. So what's going on in the soybean fields and what can we do there? Yeah, I'll, I'll never forget 2014 in Illinois, specifically Western Illinois. Um, I've never seen so much sudden death syndrome in my whole career, my whole life. It just, it just took out the crop. Uh, fast forward today, we have, um, we have some management techniques um, that, that have really helped growers um, overcome that disease. Now, did we see it this year? Yes. Um, but, but it really was not widespread um, for a couple of reasons that I'll go through. I, growers have, we've, that, that disease is not new, not new. We've been managing for that disease for well over a decade <clears throat> versus some of these corn diseases that are rather, more rather uh, new. So between seed treatments and again, going back to that genetic resistance is key um, as well as controlling things like um, soybean cyst nem nematode um, growers have really come a long way in you know overcoming that disease so so yes it was there this year what I saw came in very late um, maybe on varieties that, that didn't have that have the best score or <clears throat> fields or, or you know growers that didn't use some of the robust uh, seed treatments so um, I don't think it took a lot of yield off. The thing about sudden death syndrome, it's a two-part situation. Um, it's a root rot, really, is what it is. And so if you plant in the cold, wet conditions, um, or even into ideal conditions, and then it gets cold and wet, um, you, you can get that infection. Um, but then you have to have late season rains as it's filling pods propagate, meaning grow that disease in the root. And then what it, it does is it, it shoots up a, um, a toxin into the leaves and that's what takes out the leaf area and actually causes majority of the yield loss. So it's, it's kind of a two part thing, um, which is why you don't always see it every year. Um, but what you can do to protect it, is is these seed treatments and there's you know there's there's two major ones on the market um, saltro and olivo um, that protect um, early season on in that infection and again nothing a silver bullet so a seed treatment has a half life of about 30 days so um, you know and that, and that can vary right five to ten days on either side depending on conditions but you know so if you're out there planting soybeans in March and using one of these seed treatments, don't think that you may not see sudden death, you know, come in. Um, so it's, it's, it's not a silver bullet, but they do a tremendous job against um, that disease. And um, again, going back to then genetic, genetic resistance is, is key. Um, and so I always kind of say you can, <clears throat> you can take a soybean variety that, maybe has just average tolerance 
and, and put it up to good tolerance with with a, with a robust seed treatment like Saltro. Um, but your 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 biggest silver bullet is taking a variety that's maybe a two or a three for sudden death syndrome inherently genetically, and then putting that robust seed treatment on and and in your setup um, for success to to do this early planting and. I tell you that this early planting soybeans, it's the, it's the easiest way to add 10 bushels to your, to your yield. Um, yeah, you got to manage for the sudden death, but, uh, easy way to go out and add some soybean yields. The early beans coming off so far have been tremendous as far as yields early planted. So, um, yeah, so those are a few things that guys can do. And, and I, and I think a lot of guys are implementing that. Um, and having success. Awesome. Well, I definitely appreciate you coming on and chatting with us today. Thank you once more for just letting us know what's going on in the fields. Oh, you're very welcome. Um, I enjoy reporting reporting what we what we see. Um, overall, we've got a. Um, I think we got a really good soybean crop coming here. There's still quite a bit of soybeans to uh to harvest yet but uh corn's a little bit all over the board between those two diseases that we talked about and then and then just a hot dry finish um it, it really took the top end off the corn in in west central illinois still good but uh certainly not a record Well, thanks again there to Brad from Golden Harvest for coming on and talking about disease. And like he said, there are things that we can do right now to probably help our yield out a little bit if you guys are seeing those diseases in the fields. And while we're talking about it, we definitely want to see what you guys are seeing in the fields. So you can submit some photos to us on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram at Ag News Daily. With that, Delaney, should we let the people go? Let's let them go.